Well, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. They were consumed by the impending crisis. They knew the die was cast, that even now one of their number was about to betray Jesus. And he'd been preparing them for his upcoming death. And now that death colors everything that he said to them. He said he would come for them, but first the cross. He said he would send another helper to them, but first the cross. He promised them further insight that they would come to know the truth, but first the cross. Their grief was going to get, was going to get worse, he tells them. Verse 20 in chapter 16, truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. They feared the world around which, when they saw gathering together against the Messiah, what would become of them? And our Lord gives them his final word of comfort, chapter 16, verse 33. Take heart, I have overcome the world. But first, before we get to the overcoming, in these verses we read this evening, we find our Lord Jesus introducing us to the church's rejection by the world. The word world is mentioned about six times in the space of three verses. Now, what does he mean by the world? Well, it's not a reference to the physical world made by God, but to the moral world in its rebellion against God. It may be a religious society, it may be a secular society, but the Bible describes the world as godless, whether it's religious or irreligious. It is godless because it rejects the one and only God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 19 of John's Gospel, the world lies, in 1 John, rather, chapter 5, verse 19, the world lies in the power of the evil one. John says in his epistle that just as a, a man is cradled in the arms of a prostitute, so the world is in the arms of the evil one. Gone to putty in the arms of the evil one. At the bidding of the evil one. This is the human community, then, that rejects or ignores Christ, of which Satan is the prince and God. The world, as a society, a community, in a state of active rebellion against God, populated by rebels. To the followers of Jesus, the world represented not only the religious establishment of Judaism and the secular authority of Rome, it represented what was in the hearts of everyone apart from those who had faith in Jesus. Now, given that there is such an entity, given that the world is that in the minds of the followers of Jesus, what kind of future could they expect if Jesus was removed from them? Listen to what he said. I've said things, these things to you to keep you from falling away. One of the key ideas in John 15 has been that they should be abiding in Christ. Abiding 
is similar to persevering, that they should persevere in Christ, that they should keep going in Christ, that they should keep believing in Christ, that they should go deeper into Christ. Persevering is one aspect of what abiding means. Jesus says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that they are making an offering to God or they're offering service to God. He was thinking perhaps of the Jews, thinking of Paul of Tarsus, Paul of Tar- Saul of Tarsus thought that in pursuing Christians to their death, he was doing God a service. ISIS tonight think that by pursuing Christians to death, they are doing God a service. They will do these things to you because they have not known the Father nor me. There is the crucial thing. What characterizes the world is that it does not know the Father because it does not know Jesus. This has been one of his themes. Believe in God, believe also in me. What does it mean to believe in God? It means to believe in me. What does it mean to believe in me? It means to believe in God. The only God there is, is known only through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. I said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So, He is concerned, do you see, for the men in that room with him. Those those words are primarily spoken to them. They're there. They're going to be abandoned by their Lord, at least in their mind. And they're going to have to face these things in the future. He's anxious that their faith will not fail. He wants them to persevere, to abide in him. He wants them to trust his word. And so he gives them this prophecy. It's not the kind of prophecy you want to hear. But it was a prophecy nonetheless of their future. He wants them to know that when these things happen to them, it it isn't that everything has gone wrong. It isn't that the, the program has suddenly sunk and that God's purposes have been reversed. No, he is warning them so that when it happens to them, they will know that Jesus warned them beforehand and that his word is true. Now, this is precisely the kind of treatment these first apostles received. These early leaders of the church were not power brokers. They were not church celebrities. They were, in fact, wanted men. Their names would appear in the posters in the the Wild West days. I grew up watching Wild West shows. You want me to tell you anything about Wild West programs and television, I can tell you about them all. Rawhide, Wagon Train, Cheyenne, and Tombstone, anything you want to know, I'll tell you them. But I saw these wanted posters. These apostles of Jesus were on the wanted posters in the first century. They were wanted men, all of them, but one met a martyr's death. Jesus is concerned for them. He's concerned that they do not fall away. And by extension, do you see? He is speaking to them about their future so that we can read about it and be encouraged that Jesus' word is true. So that when these things happen to us, Jesus is concerned about our faith. And so this is in the Bible so that we might derive some benefit and encouragement from it. Well, in order to put it into context, Jesus then spells out to them the nature of the attitude of the world to the church. We go back to verse 18. 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Why does the world hate the church? Ultimately, because the world hates our connection to Jesus. It hated Jesus. Therefore, it will hate the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to him again. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. The persecutors of the church do not know God. Whatever they worship as God is not God. They do not know God. For God can only be known in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. The world hates you. Jesus has chosen his people out of the world, and so they no longer belong to it. We, we're still in the world, of course. We're not exploring that thought this evening, but we're dealing with this passage, which is emphasizing that if you belong to Jesus, you no longer belong to the world. It's usual in our post-Christendom world that we live in, it's usual for us to bemoan the fact that as Christians, we have lost or are losing our influence in the public square. We've convinced, become convinced, or we've convinced ourselves that the best place to be is in that place where our voice corporately is heard, in the corridors of power. What we need to understand is, from the language of Jesus himself, that being accepted, even being tolerated by the world, is a blip. It is unusual. It's unexpected. It's not the normal thing. It's not the thing that we should expect should be the case. It is not in the story of human history. It is not the way things normally are. This is what's to be expected, Jesus is saying to these men, rejection by the world. You see, when we're, when we're no different from the world, the world just ignores us, really. It will treat us with complete indifference. If we're copying the world, the worldly church, for example, a church is worldly when it follows the trends and simply echoes the values of the culture around it, whether they're the values of the left or the values of the right, then the world really finds the church not a problem. Nothing to be admired, but not a problem. If the church is like the world when it, it acquiesces in uh, its innate resistance to the idea that Jesus is the only way of salvation, the world doesn't raise a, a question. Of course he isn't. And if you agree with us that he isn't, then we've negotiated a little peace deal here. The world is at peace with a church like that. But when the church remembers to be godly and Christ-like, the world hates the church. Archbishop William Temple put it like this. 
The world would not hate angels for being angelic, but it does hate men for being Christians. It grudges them their new character. It is tormented by their peace. It is infuriated by their joy. The world system. Now, I have to add a caveat here. That does not mean that every person who's not a Christian that you meet will hate you any more than every person that ever met Jesus when he was here hated him. But it is a comment on the world as a system. It's when there is this aggregation of people together. You know that people together, a little boy going to and from school on his own may be well behaved. But once he gets with his mates, once he gets together with the gang, together they do things that they would never do individually. Certainly in the school I was at. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. They would gang together, and they would gang up against other individuals. They would never have done it on their own. The world as an aggregate, as a system, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, becomes a powerful influence and a powerful force against the church of God. So here's the logic of Jesus' argument. If people oppose the disciples, it's because they oppose Jesus. If people oppose Jesus, it's because they do not know God, the Father. Therefore, if people oppose the disciples, it's ultimately because they don't know God. That's his his line of argument. Behind the world's hostility is ignorance of God. Verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And Jesus says that such ignorance is willful. That's without excuse. Look at verse 24, 22 to 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus is making a comment, not just upon the Jewish world, but the world at large. He has come into the world. His coming into the world is going to change everything. Now, today, wherever you go in the world, there is a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Perhaps one of the great areas that's causing a lot of heartache at the moment is the the Muslim world. And the Muslim world is well aware of Jesus. They recognize him as a prophet, but not as the Messiah, certainly not as the Son of God. But they are aware of Jesus, and they're aware of the Christian claims about Jesus. In many ways, Islam is a Christian heresy. And what Jesus is saying is this, if he had not come and spoken to the world, if he had not done among these people the works that he had done, they would not have been as guilty as they were. But it was his words and his works that made their opposition to him inexcusable. He quotes the Jewish law, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What they're doing is no more than had been prophesied by David in Psalm 69. There the Messiah King is confronted by a large number of enemies with great military and political power. They level their charges against him. And he is a righteous sufferer, prayerfully trusts God and in God for deliverance. And while the psalmist may have expected the righteous in general to be delivered, in Jesus' sake, God's wrath was allowed to fall on him for the sake of the salvation of his people. 
Now, history demonstrates the accuracy of Jesus' prediction here, as all hell broke loose against the apostles and the early Christians. Now, how is the church then to respond to this hostility by the world? Well, we're not to respond with resentment or retaliation or revenge. There are some religions who advocate this kind of response to those who persecute or oppose them. Christians, uncomfortably for us, are under orders not only to love one another and not only to love our neighbor, but also to love our enemy. We're under orders that we should do good to those who despitefully use us. We're called not to return evil for evil. We're not to hit back. This was Jesus' clear teaching. In Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. Now he's talking there about personal attacks. He's not talking about my responsibility if someone hits you. I want to defend you. I will defend you. But he's talking about personal attacks. He's not talking about what a nation state has to do in order to protect and defend its citizens. They have to fight back. They have to go to war. He's not talking about what our police and authorities have to do if if someone someone, uh, attacks you in the street. They have to serve and protect. Defend and protect the people. That's part of their civil responsibility. But he's talking about our personal reaction to People's mistreatment of us, it's to be like Jesus himself. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, when we're attacked by the world, we want to hit back. You know, really, just give me the chance to go on one of those talk shows. I've got all the language that I would really like to point at these people and just tear them to shreds verbally. We want to do that. We like it when politicians are able to do that. That's fine. I'd like to be a politician to do that to some other politicians. But that's another matter altogether. But here you see the Christian is not, is not do that in defense of himself. It's a very hard thing to do. This goes right to the core of our sinful nature. It goes right to the heart of our resistance against, against being like Jesus. So we are to bless those who curse us. And we don't seek vengeance. We don't seek vengeance. Why? Because two other parties will seek vengeance on our behalf. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And says the Lord, the powers that be seek vengeance against evildoers. They are his minister to deal with those matters. They are his minister to deal with those matters. I said this morning, I say again, if a crime is committed and you know of that crime, you call the authorities. You don't call the minister. You call them the minister representing the magistrate, a minister of God to bring the wrath of God down on evil. The minister will come, hold your hand. While you make the phone call. Call Bruce anytime. So, uh, I'm, I'm kidding. 
So what are we not to do? We're, we're, we're not to get into this business of reaction. But nor are we to shrink from contact with the world in order to escape its opposition. We're not to kind of gather together and have pity parties for each other. No, the world, the church's response to the world is not retaliation or withdrawal, but mission. Let the world persecute the church. The church must evangelize the world. Persecution is not an excuse for silence. It is a challenge to witness. And here Jesus speaks about our Christian response to the world. He speaks first about God's response to the world. And the provision that God makes for the world is summed up in the word witness by the Spirit and by the church. Let's look at this. The Spirit's witness to the world. When the Helper comes, verse 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So what is he saying here? Well, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is the chief witness to Jesus or about Jesus before a hostile world. Back in chapter 14, we read that Jesus said the Father would give the Spirit in response to Jesus' prayer. In chapter 14, 26, the Father would send the Spirit in Christ's name. Now Jesus says that he himself will send the Spirit from the Father. And what we learn from that theologically is that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It tells us that there's an intimate connection by the Spirit or with the Spirit, with the Father and the Son. And that the Spirit's present ministry in the world is to represent the Son or replace the Son in the world. He is to be Jesus in the world. The Spirit comes as the Spirit of Jesus into the world. Notice the personal reference. He will bear witness about me. He will testify about me. He carries out this witness, we have seen already, as the Spirit of truth. He carries the major share of the load of witnessing to Christ in the world. It doesn't rest on you. It rests on him. It's his business. It's his job. Now, what can we say about this witness of the Spirit then to the world? The first thing we can say is that the Spirit's witness is an apostolic witness. We're told several things about the Holy Spirit's work in these men who are listening firsthand to Jesus in that upper room. Back in chapter 14, we were told that his ministry to them would be that he would recall to their minds the things that Jesus had taught them. In chapter 15, 26, we're told that he would bear witness to Christ. In chapter 16, verse 12, we're told that he would lead the apostles into all truth. Now, he will witness to those, by the way, you notice, I said the apostles, not us, them. We get all truth, but we get it secondhand. They get it firsthand. He is talking, do you notice how much he emphasizes this? He is talking to those who had been with him from the beginning. Verse 27. The apostles, they'd been with him from the beginning. This is not a description that could be given to anybody 
beyond the first century. So any church that claims apostolic authority and the right to continue to give us new truth, I'm afraid, is disqualified. They were not with him from the beginning. These apostles are the primary witness to Christ. Jesus had promised them a special anointing of the Spirit for the task of remembering what he said. They gave us the Gospels. Jesus is about to go on and promise them that the same Spirit will guide them into all truth. There are things he said to them. There are things I would like to have said to you, but you weren't able to take them. Well, the Holy Spirit will tell you those things. Those things are not new things, but they're an expansion of, an elaboration of, and a supplementing of the truth that I've already given to you. You weren't able to process it because you hadn't seen the resurrection. Once the resurrection has happened, that will make everything else fall into place, and the Holy Spirit will take it from there. He will guide you into all truth. Now, do you see the Holy Spirit does not contribute anything new? He takes what he hears, and he gives it to them. He takes what comes from Christ, and he conveys it to the apostles. He will will never give a more profound insight into the revelation they've already received. He'll take that, and he'll apply it to their lives and give it to their minds. Now, we, we know that the apostles themselves were keenly aware from the very beginning of their unique authority as those that Jesus had chosen and called. So when they set about the task of finding a replacement for Judas, they specified the need for someone who had, quote, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up to glory. In other words, they had a very clear idea of what the rules were to be an apostle of Jesus. That's why Paul, when he calls himself an apostle, says, I'm kind of the odd kind. I'm like, uh, you know, someone born out of due time and uh, not the same as the 12 uh, because uh, I was a rebellious man and I was a, a persecutor of the church and until I saw Christ as one born out of due time. The key thing is this. One of these men, they said, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. There is the core of the apostolic purpose, witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. So we're not surprised that from the very beginning in the book of Acts, the early Christians, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the Spirit's witness then first comes to us secondhand, through the apostles. Their job was to write and speak what they'd seen and heard, to seal the witness with their blood. Their work was unique and unrepeatable. There are no apostles today. There's none alive today who were with Christ from the beginning. Our witness is secondary to their witness, but it is nonetheless real. Jesus refers to it in John 17 when he prays for his apostles, and then he prays for us. I pray for all those who will come to believe in me through their message. That's where you and I are in the flow of things today. But not only is the Spirit's witness a forens- uh, uh, an apostolic witness, it is a forensic witness. 
Here the emphasis is on the legal role of the Holy Spirit. The helping presence of the Spirit to the church. In John's gospel, it's not ultimately Jesus that's on trial, but the world that's on trial. And the Spirit comes as the prosecutor. He comes to expose the world's sin and the world's guilt. Look at verse 9, sorry, 8 of chapter 16. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. There is the key issue. What is the hallmark of the world, whether it's a religious world or an irreligious world? They do not believe in me. That makes it very clear, doesn't it? Not only their estrangement from God, not only their moral failure in relation to God's law, but their refusal to respond positively to God's gracious offer of life in Christ Jesus. Believing in Jesus the Messiah is the absolute prerequisite for inclusion in the new community of God's people. Unbelief is the quintessential sin for which there is no remedy. He will convict the world with regard to sin. And uh, he will convict the world with regard to righteousness, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. There may be a double-edged meaning here. On the one hand, the Spirit convinces the world of its unrighteousness. Even when it feels morally superior, even where there is a smug hypocrisy that regards itself as okay, but resents any suggestion to the contrary. It was a G.K. Chesterton who said that the world has a shockingly good opinion of itself despite all the evidence to the contrary. Even some Christian people give a shocking sense of moral superiority, an impression, by the way, that's soon smashed when you actually dig beneath the surface either of their life or the life of the church. Scripture regards people's supposed righteous acts as filthy rags in God's sight. But it may mean more than this. Jesus adds, because I go to my Father. Jesus is going to his Father by way of resurrection and ascension. The resurrection and ascension vindicate him. The resurrection and ascension reverse the world's verdict of him. And in vindicating him, it vindicates his sinless life and his sin-bearing death as a finished, satisfactory work. Righteousness which comes to us now on the basis of what the Messiah Jesus has done. He will convict the world thirdly of judgment. The ruler of this world now stands condemned. If this, if this celestial ringleader of all evil is condemned, then that includes all those who do his bidding, whether they're demons or humans. If the ruler of the world is judged on the cross then the world he rules is one day going to be judged. Look at this. 
concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What the ruler of this world is telling us about the world system we live in is that it is not neutral. It is being manipulated by powers and authorities, the principalities and powers, the authorities, uh, those forces of spiritual darkness that operate in the heavenly realms and the unseen realm. This world we live in is full of demons. And they manifest themselves wherever lies are taught, wherever Christians are accused. Because the devil is a liar from the beginning. He is a deceiver from the beginning. He is the accuser of the brethren. False ideas and false doctrines are the evidence in this era of the ruler of this present darkness. And the world, the devil, stands condemned. There on the cross, Jesus smashed the power of Satan. With all that he brought against Jesus, it was destroyed there. It found its end point there. Because Jesus overcame there and then, so his people will overcome in the end. Well, let's leave it there for this evening and pray. Father, we ask that this evening you would take your word and as we go out tomorrow to live in the world and to rub shoulders with friends and colleagues and uh, enjoy them as much as we can as human beings, as our neighbor whom we love in Jesus' name. We help us, Lord, not to become discouraged by what the aggregation of those individuals in its manifestation in culture or society or in the nation or in the international processes are doing. Don't help us not to become discouraged by that, but to understand that there is a kind of energy driving human nature and the world system in which we live that comes from hell and that manifests itself in opposition to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. We pray you would keep us close to you, keep us close to the word of truth that that enlightens us, keep us close in our relationship to you, our Father, through our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.